You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. How you doing, Red Door? It's a silly question, isn't it, really? What are you meant to say? Here's a better question. Ready? This is a better question. If anyone asked this question to someone else over coffee after the service, I would have succeeded. Here's a better question. Who are you being, Red Door Church? Who are you being? It's a better question than how you're doing. Who are you being? That's the gospel question. The culture around us that we've submersed ourselves in is preoccupied with how are you doing and what are you doing, right? What's the first thing you ask someone when you meet them for the first time at a party? What do you do? We're preoccupied with this question of what do we do? How am I doing? What am I doing? The better question is how or who are you being? That's the question that this book has posed to us from the very beginning. If you remember back to the first sermon we did five Sundays ago, the question we were asking was, who are we? What does the gospel tell us about who we are? Then we can get to, what do we do? But being always precedes doing. Let me prove it to you. In the very first verse or second verse of this book, if you go back to verse 2 to 4, this is what Paul says to the Colossian believers. He says, to the saints in Christ, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then we always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. You get the order right there in his very introduction. This is who you are, and this is what you're doing. Being precedes doing. Now, this is important because unless we understand that and believe it and start living it out, then this passage we're going to look at this morning won't make any sense to us. And we won't be able to deal with the apparent contradiction that is before us in chapter 3. In order for us to get this, in order for us to start thinking like the, the, the gospel view, like Duca was saying earlier, the, the, the gospel perspective, unless we start thinking that way about ourselves and who we are, then we're always going to fall into a trap, the trap of being preoccupied with what we do. And that's a recipe for a disaster. It's a recipe for depression and despair or arrogance and pride. Here's the contradiction, right? Let me just put it out there for you. And, and I think if we had have done what the church in Colossae did and just read this letter out all at once, you would have got this. But we've put them uh, on separate weeks and so maybe we could escape without addressing this contradiction, but I don't want to overlook it. Ready? Last week, Dooku read Paul in chapter 2, Verse 20 to 23. All right, this is what he says. If you died with Christ to the elements of the world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't tart, taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. 
Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So it appears that part of this um, new teaching that was threatening the Christians in Colossae, there was this one kind of guru leader and then a movement behind him of people who were saying, you know, we need to get back in touch with our pagan roots and we need to bring in with that paganism some of the Hebrew wisdom. So we should observe some of the Torah law as well as going back to some of the things we're more used to as pagans, right? These people have only been Christians for about 10 years. The church is still very young, just like ours. And so these guys were starting to get some traction saying, yeah, we can do the gospel thing, but we need to, we need to have some of what we're used to as well, what, you know, some of our roots. And so we had this, you had this sort of folk religion come about where it was this weird mix of paganism and Torah law and then some gospel thrown in with it. And, and it seems like a big part of it was this, that he quotes the, these, these regulations, these um, do, don't handle, don't t- taste, don't touch. It's a list of do's and don'ts. Lists of do's and don'ts and laws and regulations are very attractive to people who want some stability, who want some, some black and white direction. Sometimes the gospel can seem a little bit too flimsy doesn't tell you what to do enough. So he says, don't, don't follow that list of rules and regulations. It appears like it's, it's wisdom, like telling you the right thing to do, but it's of no value in actually changing your behaviour, changing what you do. Now, the, the apparent contradiction is that in our passage, I count 11 do's and 11 don'ts that Paul gives the people in Colossae. So it says, don't obey a list of do's and don'ts, and here is a list of do's and don'ts. I've got them written down here. So you've got to do compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, thankfulness, teaching, admonishing, and everything in the name of Jesus. And you don't do sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. Now, does this seem strange? I thought it was strange enough that we needed to talk about it. Don't obey a list of do's and don'ts. Here's my list of do's and don'ts. Now, here's the difference. Here's why this is an apparent contradiction, but not one in essence. It's not a contradiction because Paul has already established this very strongly, this idea that being precedes doing. Being precedes doing and that makes all of the difference when it comes to what we're being called to do so look at this ready in in verse one to three of our passage chapter three he says so if you have been raised with Christ that's the bottom line that's the foundation that's the being part if you have been raised with Christ seek things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's his point. Before he's going to talk to us about the things that he wants us to do and not do, he's first going to call us to remember who we are. 
you have been raised with Christ. You have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ and that has fundamentally changed who you are. That's changed your identity. And we need to hear this really loudly and clearly in our culture today where where identity has become commodified and this is like this is the most important thing about you who you are who do you identify as man woman neither straight gay old young rich poor all of these things determine who you are in the eyes of the world and we have this enormous pressure on us to choose one thing to, to be the essence of who we are. And the gospel says, if you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, then that is your fundamental identity. You are in Christ. That's where we begin. Being precedes doing. We can only talk about the things that God is calling us to do We can only talk about the way of life that he's calling us to if we first establish who we are. Otherwise, we'll always fall into the trap of thinking that what we do produces who we are. We get it the wrong way around. Cart before horse, right? If I just do these things, then maybe God will make me who he wants me to be. If I do these things, maybe God will adopt me into his family. We see ourselves as these beggar children who need to ingratiate ourselves with the king Paul says no first first and foremost you need to know you are saints you are brothers and sisters you are in Christ you have died and been raised with him and then we can talk about what you're called to do really what he's doing here is just taking Jesus teaching and applying it to the church in Colossae. This is one of Jesus' major focuses in his teaching. He always wants to take it away from the external doing to the internal being, right? He's always talking about the heart. He says, it's no good washing the outside of a cup. You've got to wash the inside. It's not no good being a, a really fancy and, and, and posh-looking tomb if there are rotting bones on the inside. And he says this in Mark chapter 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come all the things that Paul tells us not to do in this passage, right? Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's where we need to get to. If we're going to start living the way that God wants us to live, and he's really unequivocal, like we've got the list 11 do's and 11 don'ts. All of this is important. It's not to be thrown away. But before we get there, we have to come to terms with who he has made us to be. He's done a heart work in us. And that's the difference. 
these laws, these lists of regulations, human commands and doctrines, they, they, they call us to obey rules that don't change our hearts. They call us to a list of regulations that can't do anything to change the real problem. That's why they don't work. That's why all your New Year's resolutions died back in January, right? That's why those self-help books are on your shelf and aren't really having an influence over you anymore because they're all trying to address the external, externalities. Jesus says you have to get to the heart then the gospel is so different because the gospel gives us a new heart. That's what it does. It gives us a new heart that's inclined towards obedience. The gospel gives us a new heart which is inclined towards obedience, towards holiness, towards right ways of doing and being. And in receiving the gospel, we receive the Spirit of God who encourages us and strengthens us and empowers us to do. This is what Paul says. He says it exactly like this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. It's when we come to terms with who we are and then start living that out, walking in the spirit, that we're for the first time able to really obey what God commands us. We really are able to live out a Christ-like life. But without the gospel, without dying and being raised again, without the Spirit empowering us, we're just obeying rules and regulations that have no value, Paul says, in curbing self-indulgence. You you guys know that I love poetry and I really like this poem by, by the Puritan, John Burridge. He says this, I love this, run John and work the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands but sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. I'm going to read that again for all of you who are ignoring it. Run John and work Right? This is a slave master talking. Run, John, and work, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Here's the, the truth of the gospel and really Jesus' ethic for living. He doesn't lower the bar of expectation against the law. He raises it beyond anything we could ever hope to obey or, or, or live in. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's a a raised bar. That's, That's going from work and walk to fly. But along with that huge rise in expectations of the behavior of God's people, he also equips us with wings 
to enable us to do it. But if we just see the command to fly and then, and, and, then, um, and then try to do it without first being equipped with the wings of the Spirit, then we're going to crash and we're going to burn. So all of this sounds pretty good. If you are here this morning and you're identifying fundamentally as a new creation in Christ, you've died and were raised again in Him. Maybe you symbolise that in your baptism, going into the water, signifying death and burial, coming up again, signifying resurrection. You acknowledge that God has given you a new heart, inclined towards obedience. You acknowledge that the Spirit Himself dwells within you, empowering you, encouraging you to live a new life. All of that sounds amazing. And then we look back at the last week at how we've been living. And that's where the crushing despair can come in. If you're honest, right? So here's the nuanced truth that we need to grasp, right? The truth is that all of this, this glorious truth about new hearts and spirit empowered and all of that doesn't mean that we'll immediately overcome all of our sinful proclivities. That's obvious, right? It's obvious from this letter. Paul is writing to a church that's about 10 years old. Most of the Christians there would have been Christians for about a decade, and he's still commanding them, instructing them, exhorting them not to live lives that reflect their former way of being, right? Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't be angry. Don't, don't enjoin yourself in malice. So it's obvious that these Christians were still struggling to live a resurrection life in Jesus, and I'm assuming we're the same. Here's where it's really important to remember that in this whole letter, Paul has been preaching a message of old creation and new creation. He's been preaching a message about the kingdom of God which has come and begun this work of God which will eventually bring about a full consummation of a new creation. It began with Jesus like a seed in the ground and it's growing and growing and growing. And when he comes again, the whole thing's going to be wrapped up and consummated, right? The new creation will be here never again to fall or fade. And he says it's the same with your Christian life. It's a now and not yet thing. You have been raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God and you're still living on this earth dealing with the kinds of temptations that everyone else deals with. But the cure has begun. The cure of your tendencies away from God, your tendencies to indulge the flesh, your tendencies towards sin, that that cure has begun and will eventually fully come about in the second coming of Jesus. Now, it wouldn't be one of my sermons without a quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. And 
my, my mind went to this when I was thinking about this idea of it, the word we use is sanctification, right? It's this process, slow, slower than we'd like, of us being changed from who we are or who we were into more and more into the image of God, more and more into Christ-likeness. That's, the word is sanctification. It's an increasing in holiness and increasing in Christ-likeness. And there's this really, really good illustration of this truth in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's this character in that book called Eustace. In fact, I think the first line of the book is, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's a great opening line to a book. Just, he was a real piece of work. And, um, and, 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 and so the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in some ways is, his, is the story of his conversion, his um, being made into a new creation. And it happens through him being enchanted uh, and, 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 and um, changed into the form of a dragon. And then Aslan, the, the Jesus character in the book, comes and changes him. He, he, he rips off the dragon's skin and then throws the boy into a pool signifying baptism, signifying new birth and baptism. And so in the book, this boy undergoes this great conversion experience. And then after this, after he's been changed back to a boy and, and changed it's fundamentally in his who he is, changed by Aslan himself, it says this about him. It says, It would be nice and fairly true to say from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And that's the picture of sanctification that the Bible gives us. In our new birth, the cure has begun. None of us here have arrived at this point. None of us here will be perfected until Jesus comes and gives us new bodies, resurrection bodies and resurrection desires and inclinations. But the cure has begun. This is how Paul says it in our passage in verse 8 to 10. He says, but now, always take notice when Paul says, but now. That's a, he's making a, a strong break from what's gone before. But now. Put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. This is his way of talking about sanctification. Well, conversion and sanctification. You've put off the old self. you put on this new self, a new creation, and now you are being renewed. It's, it's good in the Greek. There's, they have a tense for now and all ongoing. We don't have it in English, but it's, it's there in the original Greek text. It's, it, you are being renewed. You have been and are continuing to be renewed into the image of your Creator. You're being made more perfect, more like your Father in heaven. This is happening as you live out this existence, this identity 
as those who have died and been raised with Christ. My dad's here this morning. I didn't know he was going to be here, uh, but yeah, he's here. And, uh, and I, I took him out about a week or so ago, and um, for Father's Day, my Father's Day present to him, I took him out to Mount Macedon, and we went up to the top of the hill, and we went to some gardens, and we had lunch, and it was really nice. At one point, I took a photo of us together. Here we are. And um, very flattering photo. And you see the chewing gum stuck in my mouth. Anyway, the thing that struck me about this photo is how much my dad and I look alike. Like there are certain features about us. And if you see us interacting, there are mannerisms that, that in which I'm sort of mirroring him. And I've noticed the older I get, the more I look like him. Now, here's the thing about that, right? Like, the, more, the older I get, the more I look like him. Most of that is not down to anything that I am choosing to do, right? I, I'm not, I, I've thought about dyeing my hair grey and maybe thinning it out a bit, but I, I'm not sure if I'll go that far. But most, most of my becoming, my, my appearing more like him is in my genes. I can't, like, I can't do anything about that. There are some things I can do to prevent myself from looking more like him. I can, I, can pretend, I can pretend I'm 15 again and spike my hair up, or I, I could dye it pink, or I could come like my kids today and have my face painted, or you know, I, can, I can wear clothes that are outrageous. I, there are some things I can do to sort of mask the fact that I'm looking more like him. But ultimately, it's in my genes. I'm becoming more like him. And so it is with sanctification. Being renewed into the image of our creator, being renewed into the image of God, it's in our genes now. We've been born again with a new set of genes. And there are things that we can do to mask that. We can take all of the don'ts on this list and go and do them as much as we can. And it'll start to mask that. It'll start to distract people from our true essence as children of God. But ultimately, the cure has begun. We're being renewed day by day into the image of our Father. And so for Paul, it's so important for us to know who we are and then to be who we are. And you might say, do who we are. That's the essence of Christ-likeness. And so he says, therefore, verse 12, right? He goes on, therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, since you've been made and continue, uh, continuing to be made more like your perfect heavenly Father, be who you are. 12 to 15, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Hey, do you see the being before doing? Just that verse. Do you see it? Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, that's the being, that's who you are, that's your identity. I am God's chosen one. I am holy. I am dearly loved. 
All of that is true because of what he has done for me. All of that is true, irrespective of how I identify myself this morning, how I'm feeling this morning, how are you doing this morning. All of this is true, irrespective of those things. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, that's who you are, holy, dearly loved. Some of us have this idea that we will be dearly loved once we get those 11 do's and don'ts down, Pat. Like God is dearly loving a future version of me. I will be dearly loved when I start behaving better. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Get this. Being precedes doing. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy, dearly loved right now, like now, like with the week you've had, dearly loved, put on then compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Man, that's a whole sermon. That's the part of the Lord's prayer that we leave off, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And we don't talk about it enough because we often proclaim God's forgiveness of you without saying, oh, and remember, just as you've been forgiven, you are to forgive others. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. That's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It, let me encourage you, in your small groups this week, take verse 12 to 15 or, or through to the end to 17. Take that passage and just do a little audit of your group. How are we doing with this? Or in your family this week, take that little list, verse 12 to, through to verse 17. How are we going with this? Start with identity, chosen ones, holy, dearly loved, then move into calling, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, thanksgiving, and so on. I love that line towards the end there where he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It gives me this idea, I don't know how much to push this, but the idea to me is that the peace of Christ will rule. The peace of Christ has been established for all eternity and it will rule your hearts if you let it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. So, the one thing we can't do coming out of this message now, coming out of this gathering this morning, the one thing we can't do is come away worried, anxious, concerned. That's not what we're being called to here. What we're called to is remembering who we are, remembering that we're chosen, holy and dearly loved, remembering that if we let it, the the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. And then then we can start stepping into 
how to live as Christ followers. Being precedes doing. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word to us this morning. I pray particularly for those of us here this morning who doubt our identity. Those of us who aren't sure whether we are in fact chosen, holy and dearly loved. Who doubt whether we have indeed died with Christ and been raised with him. Lord God, please overcome all of our doubts this morning. For those of us who think that first we must perform and then you will somehow like us or even love us. For those of us who think first about rules and regulations. For those of us who look back on the last week and doubt deeply whether we truly are born again. Father, please come now. May the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as you confirm for us that we are your children, that we have been forgiven. And on that basis now you call us to live lives of holiness. Friends, we're going to stand in a moment. We're going to sing together. But I encourage you during this time, we have people down here who... Who just, who just feel strongly that God has set them apart to pray with you. So we've talked about the inability of us in our own strength making ourselves any better or obeying any kind of law. But with prayer and petition, with empowering from the Holy Spirit, then we can start living Christ-like lives. So begin it here this morning. Come down and pray with us that God would work, work powerfully in you and through you. We didn't get to it this morning, but you saw at the end of that passage an injunction from Paul to sing, to sing to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The idea that that act of singing together emboldens us, encourages us, edifies us, as well as bringing praise and glory to God. So we're going to do that now. Let's stand and we'll sing together.